Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. The New Testament lesson this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, and you can find it on page 1038 and 39 in your Bible. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise but human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In the, Lord. the word of the Lord. As Sarah was um, doing her children's sermon and she was saying how often the children are listening to the sermon and they have no idea what the pastor is talking about, I was reminded of the first epistle of John wherein we read, Beloved, we are all God's children. <laughs> Y'all gonna have to wake up. That was really funny. <laughs> that was as good of a biblical joke as I'm gonna be able to give to you. Uh, as, we, as we turn to the Old Testament, um, uh, it, it, I think of Sib Towner, who was uh, the beloved uh, pastor emeritus of biblical interpretation at Union Presbyterian Seminary, which is my seminary alma mater. And uh, he distinctly remembers as a young person, his most beloved Sunday school teacher, teaching on the text that we're about to read. And uh, without any apology, she said that the final verse of this passage we're about to read, um, in her mind, was the golden text of the Old Testament. So with that lofty uh, introduction, uh, let's turn to Micah 6, verses 1 through 8, and listen to the word of the Lord. Hear what the Lord says, rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. 
O my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oye, 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 all persons having business before the created order, the honorable court of the cosmos, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the nation of Israel and this honorable court. Now, those words might sound a little bit familiar to you. The lawyers in the room perked up, and I changed those words a little bit to fit the context of a sermon and the prophetic context, but this language is still pretty much in that form used to open courts of law in contexts that are very familiar to us. Those words uh, still open every session of the Supreme Court of the United States, and the same is true for many state courts, including the state courts in my home state, of North Carolina. Even up to the revolutionary era, speaking English in the courts of England was not mandatory, and it was permissible to use what is called law French, which was a form of French that was influenced by the Norman conquest. The word oye is an old English modification of the French verb weir, which means to hear. And in the court context, it would have been readily understood as a marker to quiet down and listen up. Micah could have easily used a word like that here because what he is describing in the passage we just read is clearly a lawsuit. The injured plaintiff is none other than the Lord, Yahweh, the creator of the cosmos, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and the defendant is the nation of Israel, who stands accused of a variety of crimes against humanity and numerous violations of the covenant law of the Pentateuch. And the parties are both pleading their case to an elite bench of ancient and stoic judges, the mountains, the hills, the foundations of the earth. This case we are meant to understand is being pleaded in the broadest possible sense to the height of the heavens and down to the very bedrock of the earth. God, it seems, is not playing around. Oye, 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 hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice, for the Lord has a controversy with his people. So once this courtroom setting is set, the prophet Micah, as attorney 
for the plaintiff, Yahweh, speaks boldly on God's behalf in verses 3 through 5. The words come across as words directly from God. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I saved you from the curse of Balak. I brought you into the promised land. With these key examples, God proves the devotion that he has expressed with mighty deeds of love and compassion and care. The the story of the Exodus being the central story of God's love and protection, especially that final part where the entry into the promised land occurs through Joshua leading the way at Gilgal. All of it is God's way of showing this long record of faithful help and showing how disappointed God is about what God is getting in return from the people of Israel. For example, the religious and the political ruling classes are unjustly enriching themselves at the expense of the poor. Judges are taking bribes and abusing their positions. Priests and prophets are making money by selling promises of God's protection to the highest bidders. Family land that has been owned by generations is being unjustly taken by rich and powerful people. In all kinds of ways, the rulers and powerful people of Israel were bending and betraying justice to favor the wealthy. And Micah details that. Again and again, woe to them that devise wickedness, he writes, and resolve on evil lying on their beds. They covet fields and take them by violence. They covet houses and take them away. All of these documented sins are clear violations of the covenant law, which mandates physical and spiritual care for widows and orphans, aliens and others who lacked power in their culture. And the essence of the prosecution's case is this. God has been faithful to the people, so they have no excuse. Why have they not been faithful to God? Now, the response of the people to these charges is unapologetic and indignant at best, if not an outright mockery. With what shall I come before the Lord, a lone voice replies. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The response is completely lacking in a number of respects. First, it just comes across as deeply disrespectful. It's an answer based on defensiveness about all the religious kind of churchy things that the people thought they had been doing well. And it seems to be offered with a tone of resentment that somehow all of these things have not been enough for God. What do you want from us, Lord? More bulls, more rams, more doves. How about some more incense? How about some more grain offerings? How... Why don't we do our purification rituals more frequently? Even if these offers to increase their sacrificial piety, even if that was made in earnest, there's really no acknowledgement at any point 
about the substance of God's accusations. No repentance, no sense of sorrow. If anything, this offer to settle the dispute comes across as arrogant and prideful. But this, also, this answer also falls short, I think, in another way that may actually be more troubling to God. It was a cultic answer to an existential charge. Now, what I mean by that is this. The people are focused on cultic actions, the nuts and bolts of sacrifices. You know, there are all the rules about what the priest should wear, how often official prayers should be offered. Not quite this bad, but, you know, what the official hours of the temple should be. You know, when should the gates be unlocked? And let's face it, we, we can do that too in the church. Just think about how much time and effort and energy we as the church invest on the specifics of our programs. When to have Sunday school, how many Bible studies to have, the timing and the frequency of worship services, (laughs) how much money we're raising on a weekly basis, and of course the big one, what kind of entree should we serve on Wednesday nights? Now, don't get me wrong, we have to focus on details in the church. There are things that we're called to do as the church, but I get the feeling, especially here in this part of Micah, that God's more interested in something else before we get to all of that. That God is more interested in our being than God is in our doing. God wants us to be a certain way, more than God wants us to do certain things. Back when I was in my first year of seminary, I took my daughter Molly to downtown Richmond for big church. She was only four. Kate was uh, just a baby, and so she was home uh, with Stephanie, and I took Molly to church with me, but I knew it was going to be a long time sitting through uh, the service. So I took precautions. I packed her a little plastic bucket with a few very quiet toys that I thought were quiet, right, uh, that would keep her occupied. And even so, just to be safe, I chose a seat in the very back pew of a pretty big sanctuary there in Second Presbyterian Church in downtown Richmond. I figured we might be able to fly under the radar back there. And then I looked up and saw what you see this morning. I saw the Lord's table set for communion. And I looked in the bulletin and I said, yes, communion will be served today by intinction, which meant that we were going to be getting out of our little back seat and marching all the way up to the front row. Now, this was a wrinkle, I will admit. But I didn't panic at that point because I didn't think it was going to be much of a problem. I thought Molly could just walk up there with me while I took the elements Because as a cradle Presbyterian, I distinctly remember that when I was her age, you could not take communion until you had completed confirmation. As I would soon learn, rules change. (laughs) Now, as I walked up the aisle, Molly held my hand and she walked very sweetly along with me, carrying her little bucket of toys in her hand with her. It was all very cute. And at the front, as soon as I had received my piece of bread uh, and was getting ready to dip it in the cup, that's when Molly dropped her little bucket of toys and the little toys sprayed out all over the chancel underneath the pastor's feet. 
And by the time I had collected all of those, gotten them back into the bucket, which was pretty fast, by the way, I turned up and looked and to realize that the associate pastor was already handing Molly a little piece of bread. And Ben Sparks, who was then the senior pastor of Second Presbyterian Church and who is now a friend of mine, was already leaning down to hold, that, hold the cup so that she could dip the bread uh, into the grape juice. Now, for me, that's when everything started moving in slow motion. Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> Molly, of course, had no idea what to do, and that was not her fault. She was four. I had never explained the cultic rules of communion by intention, nor had I even bothered to explain to her what communion was, and I, for one, did not know that the cultic rules had changed. I had wrongly assumed that the same rule was in effect that when, that when I was a kid, that we, she could just walk up there and maybe get a quick blessing from the pastor, but she would not be taking communion that day. So in that moment, all I could do in that slow motion moment was stand there with my piece of bread in one hand and her little bucket of toys in the other and watch completely helplessly as she stared at the bread and then looked up at the pastor with a very confused look and then stared back at the bread again and then just shrugged her shoulders and went, doink, and uh, <laughs> two points uh, for Molly. <laughs> Nothing but cup, right? And all I could do was just say, I could just looked up and said, I am so sorry. <laughs> and we just kind of slunk back off to the back row. Now, the thing is, even though we got the cultic stuff wrong, that is still one of my favorite and most precious memories of communion. Now, if God cares mostly about the stuff we do, how we do it, how perfectly we do it, I guess we could have gone around to the back and we could have come through the line again and we could try again to take the bread in the right way and say the right words and to dip the bread delicately, you know, without getting our fingers touching any of the thing to gross anybody else out, right? And then we could return to our pew in the back row all decently and in order via the outside aisles. But if I had, if we had done that, then I would not have those precious and enduring memories of that day how it was, not what we did, how it was. How cute Molly was as she innocently celebrated the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for the first time in a way that was entirely her own. The effortless grace that all those pastors and all of the people around us just kind of took it all in, and especially the joyful smile that Ben Sparks gave to me, a veteran pastor to a pastor in training, one father to another father, one disciple to another disciple. Because God is the kind of God that God is. I remember not a moment of doing, but a precious moment of being. And that brings us to the verdict in this covenant lawsuit. Because God is the kind of God that God is, this sentence does not focus on what God will do to the people as punishment, but rather on a hope for what God's people will be. 
Once again, God is focused not on the doing, but on the being. The mountains and the hills, all of creation, even to the foundation of the world, deliver this final golden verdict. He's told you already, mortal, what's good. You know what it is that the Lord requires of you, and it is to do justice and to love kindness and to just walk humbly with your God. And yes, these are, in a way, things to do. As a church, we can and we should talk about what we can do here and now to offer justice to the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. We can talk about the things we can do to show kindness, what it looks like to walk daily in a humble way as God's people. But this in Micah is in no way a to-do list. There are no specifics here. God has already given us the specifics in the law and in the writings, in the letters and in the parables. And let's face it, we've proven to be pretty good at ignoring those things. Perhaps we would be better served to concentrate on the being before we get lost in the doing. Because in the kingdom of God, everything we do, better said, everything that we are, is rooted in a way of being, a being that begins with a spiritual foundation of justice and kindness and humility. May God help us to be people like that. Amen.